from Compass Media Networks, this is America's First News. This morning, with your host, Gordon Deal. Shutdown averted. Good morning, I'm Gordon Deal, along with Nicole Murray. On this Friday, January 19th, glad you could be with us. Here's what we have for you this hour. Congress has approved a government funding extension for another six weeks, but still hasn't resolved two of the most difficult issues. The U.S. has launched another attack on Houthi missile positions in Yemen. Meanwhile, Israel's war on Hamas reaches a perilous phase. Hunter Biden will testify before the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees on February 28th. And you want to save big bucks on a cruise? Sail on an older ship. There are folks who, who you know, don't love all that, the hustle and bustle of those large ships. You know, they don't need all the gimmicks. They just want a relaxing time at sea. And so for them, um, steering clear of what's new and shiny is the way to go. And you can save money in the process. Jacob Passy at the Wall Street Journal on cheap cruises on ships that are 25 years old. There's been a fifth round of strikes by the U.S. military on Houthi weaponry sites in Yemen. The Pentagon now estimates that about 25 percent of the Houthi arsenal has been destroyed. President Biden said yesterday the U.S. would continue to target Houthi weaponry until the group ceases its attacks on shipping vessels. Pentagon spokeswoman Sabrina Singh. Our initial assessments are are that we've been very successful and that we've been able to um, destroy pretty much all of the targets that we hit. So, um, again, that's like that's one less capability. That's one less missile that they're able to use tomorrow. Attacks by the Houthi terrorists on ships in and around the Red Sea since November have slowed trade between Asia and Europe. From a wider lens, attacks by Houthi rebels in Yemen targeting cargo ships in the Red Sea have persuaded more carriers to opt for the safer but longer and more expensive journey around Africa via the Cape of Good Hope. The Wall Street Journal says those detours are raising freight costs and leading retailers in Europe to worry about running out of stock. Congress will avoid a government shutdown this weekend after approving a funding extension until March, but lawmakers did not settle critical issues like funding for Ukraine or immigration policy changes for the southern border. The Senate voted 77 to 18. The House voted 314 to 108 to extend funding to March 1st and March 8th. Avoiding a shutdown means Americans are spared disruptions in food safety inspections, passport processing, air travel, early childhood learning programs, small business loans, and more for another six weeks. Connecticut Democratic Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro. Some of my colleagues would see that this government would shut down and don't care how hurtful that would be. Virginia Republican Bob Good, chair of the Freedom Caucus. We have the majority in one half of the legislative branch. When will that begin to account for something? When will that begin to matter for something? When you have the majority in one branch or one house of one branch, shouldn't you get half of what your policy priorities are? It's the third government funding extension this Congress has approved. There was one in September and another in November. The Justice Department is out with its report into the worst school shooting in Texas history, calling the delayed response by law enforcement a failure with no one taking full command to stop the gunman who slaughtered 19 students and their two teachers in Uvalde. The report described a chaotic scene where there was no command and control by officers during a period when children were calling 911 for help and also put blame on the school's police chief who tried negotiating with a killer who had already shot his way into the classroom, but also had his officers go search for keys to unlock the classrooms. 
Jasmine Caceres lost her younger sister in that shooting. I think our community needs to hear all of the officers that actually failed more than just the people that were in leadership positions that day. The Justice Department reviewed more than 14,000 pieces of data and documentation, including training logs, audio, video, closed-circuit TV, photographs, personal records, and investigative records on the ground. Federal investigators conducted more than 260 interviews. If you still have landline phone service, you may have noticed that your monthly bills have been skyrocketing. That's because the FCC no longer regulates copper lines and phone companies are jacking up the price of their service. UMA is an internet home phone service that lets you keep enjoying the safety and peace of mind of a home phone without paying an arm and a leg. In fact, with a one-time purchase of the UMA Tello, you get internet home phone service for free. All you pay are applicable taxes and fees. Unlike mobile phones, UMA has address-based 911, so dispatchers will know exactly where to find you in an emergency. In the event you call 911, UMA can send a text alert to loved ones. UMA even includes a free mobile app so you can take your home number on the go. And don't worry, you can keep your home phone number for a one-time fee or get a new one for free. Setup is easy. It takes less than 10 minutes. Stop paying too much for home phone service. Visit UMA.com slash Gordon Deal today to get a special discount. That's O-O-M-A dot com slash Gordon Deal. Thanks for spending time with us. Welcome into Friday. The Israeli military largely controls the north of Gaza after heavy bombardment reduced much of its urban areas to rubble, along with many tunnels. Most of the population fled south, but Israel's progress in the south is facing a logjam. Its forces are closing in on a swollen population of displaced Palestinians who are running out of places to flee. We're joined now by Marcus Walker, senior foreign affairs correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. He's with us from Tel Aviv. Marcus, what are we seeing? Well, so far, the war has um, been like the movement of armies and, and the displaced civilian population um, down a chessboard. It began in the north of Gaza with very heavy Israeli bombardment, obviously in response to the attack by Hamas on um, southern Israel on, on the 7th of October. Um, after the, the Israeli army had taken the north, north of of Gaza by a ground assault, um, most of the population was was on the move towards the south, and the Israeli army is now hunting down Hamas in the biggest city in the southern part of Gaza, which is Khan Yunis. Uh, it's extremely difficult to disentangle the fighting from the population, um, even where the Israeli army tries to do so by issuing warnings and evacuation orders, because the Palestinian population of Gaza is simply running out of places to flee to as the war moves further south in, in the Gaza Strip. And so what we now have is a, a growing danger of a big collision in southern Gaza between a swollen refugee population, uh, what's left of Hamas, and, and the Israeli army. Boy. All right, so your chessboard analysis was terrific because, as you say, the, the civilians are running out of pieces on this board to flee, and Hamas knows that. I guess, and is following the, the, the Palestinian civilians. Yes, um, Hamas is definitely trying to fight from areas where there is a high civilian population. Um, the Israelis accuse Hamas of using the population as a civilian um, shield, which Hamas always denies, but there, there is um, plenty of visit video evidence that we can see that shows uh, Hamas firing rockets and trying to fight from uh, places where there are lots and lots of people and also um, near locations such as hospitals, for example, uh, which then end up drawing Israeli fire. 
and it seems that part of Hamas's strategy is to arouse the uh, you know the anger of the world at the civilian death toll from this invasion. We're speaking with Marcus Walker, a senior foreign correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. He's based in Tel Aviv right now. His piece is called Israel's War in Gaza Enters Its Most Perilous Phase Yet. Can you describe the tunnels where Hamas uh, hides at times, I guess? I know you said they're about shoulder width and maybe no taller than uh, a, a soldier's helmet, but how vast are they? Well, the tunnels are incredibly varied. I only saw very small parts of the tunnel network under Han Yunus, um, under one neighborhood in, in the eastern outskirts of, of Han Yunus. Even there, there are actually different layers of tunnels. So there are the tunnels below tunnels. You have to imagine that you have one set of tunnels at about maybe 60 feet underground and, and then maybe 100 feet underground there are other tunnels running beneath them some of the tunnels are very crude they're lined with cement or slabs of concrete others are whitewashed or they have ceramic tiles they look like your bathroom with a you know a tiled floor and, and walls and a higher level of of comfort some are built um to be habitable some are built to be more like um transport routes between different neighborhoods um, one tunnel near where I was uh, had a whitewashed corridor that had lots of very small cramped cells off it. The Israeli military says that hostages were held there and that they found forensic evidence um, of some of the hostages in, in those very cramped cells deep underground. What's clear is it's an extremely elaborate system of tunnels that has many, many uses from hiding to fortification to movement, maneuver, um, storing weapons, hiding hostages, hiding Hamas leaders. Uh, it's a real city under the city. Uh, I, I believe that in the northern part of Gaza, at one point, Israel tried to flood those tunnels. Not sure how that went or how it worked, but what about doing that in the southern part of Gaza with the tunnels under Han Yunus? They have indeed tried that. Um, it, that might be easier in tunnels that are very near the sea, um, but much of eastern Han Yunus is a long way from the sea, and uh, the Israelis tried to use other means to destroy tunnels, especially blowing them up, um, blowing up the entrances and, and the shafts. But the sheer scale of, of this network of tunnels is really showing it's a, a very big project to, to destroy them. Thanks, Marcus. Marcus Walker, senior foreign affairs correspondent at The Wall Street Journal with us from Tel Aviv. 20 minutes after the hour on This Morning, here's Nicole Murray. And now, the three big things you need to know. Number one. Congress has approved a short-term funding extension, averting a partial government shutdown. However, lawmakers continue to butt heads over the $110 billion foreign aid package that would aid Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Republicans remain adamant they will not agree to any funding that does not implement tighter border security. Texas Republican Congressman Chip Roy is not on board with the further deficit spending. Kicking the can down the road. That's what we do. It's what we do best in this chamber. The bill extends government's funding until March 1st and March 8th. Originally, financial deadlines were today and February 2nd. Number two. The U.S. launched a fifth round of strikes on Houthi weaponry in Yemen yesterday. The U.S. Central Command says the attack targeted two anti-ship missiles that were aiming into the Southern Red Sea and preparing to launch. U.S. officials added that they posed an imminent threat to merchant vessels and U.S. Navy ships. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby. With each and every one of these strikes, uh, we are making it harder for them to continue to propagate these attacks. 
Again, as uh, we've said many times, they have a choice to make. The choice ought to be to stop these reckless attacks. President Biden has vowed the assaults will continue as the militant group continues to attack commercial ships in the Red Sea. Number three. NATO has announced its largest military exercise in decades and it will begin next week and last until May. The drills, named Steadfast Defender 2024, will involve 90,000 troops and test the Allies' ability to face off against adversaries amid Russia's war with Ukraine. NATO's Supreme Allied Commander, U.S. General Christopher Cavoli. Steadfast Defender 24 will be a clear demonstration of our unity, our strength, and our determination to protect each other, to protect, of course, our values and the rules-based international order. Steadfast will involve units from all 31 NATO member countries. New York resident Johanna Andrasani woke up at 4 a.m. to discover snowplows were dumping snow into her driveway. She called the city's public information officer, Chuck Clark, who apologized for the mistake and sent crews back out to clear the snow. What? I would be so mad. Wow. And imagine like you're running late to work and you walk out and your car's buried. Ten feet of snow in your driveway. But, like, no big deal. Thank you, Nicole. Royal Caribbean's Icon of the Seas is preparing for its inaugural voyage in late January. It's a monster. But a subset of diehard passengers are saying they'd much prefer something far smaller. Here's Jacob Passy at the Wall Street Journal. Jacob, explain the trend. The the trend these days in the cruise industry is the the new ships of the major cruise lines, you know, Royal Caribbean, Carnival, Norwegian, the newer ships that they are rolling out are getting bigger and bigger. Icon of the Seas, uh, which is set to debut later this month, like you said, uh, is going to be the world's largest cruise ship. It's five times as large as the Titanic, for reference. So, you know, truly massive. Um, but there are folks who, who you know, don't love all that, the hustle and bustle that, of the those large ships, you know, they don't need all the gimmicks. They just want a relaxing time at sea. And so for them, um, steering clear of what's new and shiny is the way to go. And you can save money in the process. Ah, all right. So get to that part. What, uh, what, what type of savings could you see if you set sail with an older cruise ship with fewer amenities? Yeah. So for starters, technically speaking, the, the the price of a cruise vacation, a lot of other factors p- play a role here. You know, the destination, the length of the cruise, the room you're in. That all being said, when you compare new ships to older ships, uh, there is a, a definite savings. Uh, you know, sometimes they cost almost half uh, per person as uh, the, the the newer ships. Uh, those new ships are going to always attract, you know, crowds for the first few years that they're in service um, because, you know, of the the kind of appeal of, of, of going on something so outrageous. Um, but but the older ships don't have that same uh, level of, of attractiveness, per se. Um, so so you can definitely save money um, and, and have a more affordable vacation on an older vessel. Wow. We're speaking with Jacob Passy, travel reporter at the Wall Street Journal. His story is called These Travelers Have a Secret. They Love Cheap Cruises on Old Ships. How old, by the way, are some of these? Yeah. So, um, you know, when, when we talk about the major cruise lines, you're looking, you can look at ships that are date back to the nineties. The so they're, you know, tw- you know, almost 30 years old in some cases. Um, that being said, there are cruise lines with even older ships, you know, some of the, the specialty expedition ships, you know, that go to like 
places like the Arctic, those are going to be even even older in some cases. But generally speaking, um, we're talking about ships that are, you know, anywhere from 15 to 30 years old. Um, and, and that being said, a lot of these ships have been refurbished fairly recently, so they're not going to necessarily uh, have the same carpet as they did in the, the, the mid-90s. But, but, you know, the, the bones of the ship, as it were, are going to date back that long. Thanks, Jacob. Jacob Passy, travel reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Ever feel like your finance software just isn't cutting it anymore? I say dump it. Hey, it's Gordon Deal, here to tell you about Ramp. It's the financial software you need to manage your expenses and avoid unnecessary work. You see, Ramp is more than a corporate card. It's a spending management software. It'll save you time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives your finance teams control and insight. You can issue a card to each employee with specific limits and automated expense reports. Ramp will systematically collect receipts and categorize expenses in real time. Just go to ramp.com slash Gordon. No more chasing down receipts or long hours on reports. Businesses using Ramp save an average of 5% in their first year and now get $250 when you join Ramp. Ramp.com slash Gordon. That's R-A-M-P dot com slash Gordon. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank, members FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. Get $250 when you join Ramp. Ramp.com slash Gordon. Advancing the conversation, identifying trends, and informing the world. This is America's First News. This morning with Gordon Deal. Thanks for being with us. Welcome into Friday, January 19. Gordon Deal, Nicole Murray. Some of our top stories and headlines. Congress avoids a government shutdown for another six weeks. The Wall Street Journal says Big Pharma is raising prices for diabetes drugs that are now used for weight loss like Ozempic and Monjaro. A hearing is set for next month for the DA in the Georgia election interference case against Donald Trump. She's accused of an improper relationship with the lead prosecutor and mishandling public money. And a woman who gave birth in a McDonald's parking lot has an appropriate nickname for her new baby boy. That story in about 20 minutes. This portion of the program is brought to you by Discover. Discover wants everyone to feel special with live 24-7 customer service. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. A blast of Arctic cold blowing across Texas early this week fueled fears of widespread blackouts like what happened three years ago with winter storm Uri. But the grid has held strong, protected in large part by the state's nation-leading renewables industry. An explainer from Saul Elbine, climate science and Texas reporter for The Hill. Saul set this up. So I was just in a coffee shop right before we got news that the, that winter storm Heather was coming in and that temperatures would maybe be below 20. And I heard a couple of dads bemoaning the fact that they weren't going to be able to get a generator before the freeze came in, which is crazy. I mean, why would temperatures under 20 crash the grid? But that's how scared people were. You know, hundreds of deaths, hundreds of billions of dollars in damage, four very unpleasant days for most of the people in the state. People are really scared, but it didn't happen. And there's a couple of reasons why it didn't happen. And the first one that we have to be honest about is we didn't get freezing rain. We didn't get snow. We didn't get that extra weight maybe pulling down power lines. The state is a little bit more prepared. People know what can happen, and that scares them, and to some extent it scares them straight. But Gordon, the big thing that changed is that this state has been putting in renewable power like it is nobody's business. Wow. I mean, things that people, I think, don't really appreciate about Texas is that we're a renewable energy leader largely because of the state Republican Party. This has happened under GOP rule. Since 2004, I believe, I'd have to check that, but let's say 
since the early 2000s when Governor Rick Perry started signing legislation backing wind power, which was something that, that former Governor George W. Bush had also wanted, this state has become the number one producer of, of wind energy and of solar energy. And what that means is, and what that meant, say, yesterday when it was 17 degrees outside when I woke up, is that in the morning when there wasn't much sun, the grid ran on fossil fuels, same as it always has, probably two-thirds of it. Okay. But by the afternoon, by the time you know sun's high in the sky, still real cold, 60% of the power on the grid is renewable. Now think about that. In Texas, fossil fuel state, Republican-controlled state, right. 60% of the power came from renewable sources. What types of sources, Saul? Wind turbines? Wind turbines are the ones that everyone's familiar with, and, and a ton of the power came from wind, and the majority of it came from wind. Let's say about 30% at, at uh, you know 3 p.m., but the thing that's increasing really, really fast is solar. We've been putting in solar like crazy. There's, I think, 15 gigawatts of solar now, enough to provide power for, I don't know, 12 million households. Jeez. By the end of the decade, they're talking 90 gigawatts or 90 Jeez. gigawatts. That's enough for twice as many people as there are in Texas. Oh. Now, of course, they have to hold on to the power and they have, you know, long enough to get it to when people need it and they have to move it to where people need it. Those are hard problems, but the power is going to be there. Okay. We're speaking with Saul Elbine, climate science and Texas reporter at The Hill. His story is called How the Texas Grid Held Strong Amid Freeze and Fears of Blackout. Revisit, if you would, Saul, some of the rhetoric we heard about turbines not so long ago in Texas. So after Winter Storm Uri, people were really, really mad at the government, understandably. And they were really mad at the oil and gas industry because they had failed to weatherize plants and they had failed to weatherize pipelines. That was a big reason why our thermal plants failed. Now, also, a lot of wind turbines froze. So there was a dip in wind, in wind power. But the main failure had been fossil fuels. And that made the state Republican Party, who has been backing fossil fuels, in large measure against what investors and state power buyers want, were in a bad position. So we had a lot of pretty spicy quotes from state leadership about blaming the blackouts on what they like to call uh, variable power or, or unreliable power. And their argument was something like, sure, wind and solar are great when they're working, but they're, they can't be relied on to work. You need something that you can turn on when you press a button to back up the grid when you need it. And they're right about that in broad strokes. Now, that, however, is becoming less and less of a problem every day as we get better at planning as we get better at batteries, and as our batteries last longer and get deployed more. But it is still a real problem. The trouble is, it's not one that the government has been able to very easily solve. Mm. Their attempt to solve it in the last legislative session essentially broke down to a bunch of low-interest loans to gas producers that don't actually require them to build any new capacity. They can still get the credit by just signing a piece of paper that That's says, it. we promise to provide it when we've got it. They still aren't putting money into batteries. So that's something that we're hoping to see more of as we go forward. So if there had been freezing rain in this particular storm, is it unknown what could have happened? It's unknown because we don't know to what extent the winterization happened. The, the state legislature would say they fixed the problem, they passed new, new requirements, and they've encouraged new generation. We weren't as strained as we were in 2021, and there's so much renewables on right now in, in, in 2024 that it's a little bit hard to know what would have happened. But what could have happened... And what almost happened in 2021 would have been a series of failures that fundamentally destabilizes the grid, forcing, um, forcing widespread shutdowns in order to avoid the whole thing going down for months. I mean, that's, that's the apocalyptic scenario that everyone's scared of. Thanks, Saul. Saul Elbine, climate science and Texas reporter for The Hill. It is time now for the mic drop with this morning's Mike Gavin. 
Good morning. Well, at the risk of being repetitive, we seem to have an influx of stories again about nightmare airline flights. Perhaps in honor of your travels, Gordon, this past week, this one was literally a nightmare come to life for some people. Passengers on an Air Asia flight out of Bangkok this week captured video of a scene straight out of a movie or the dreams that wake you out of a cold sweat, a snake on the plane. Now, in fairness, it should be noted that the snake in question was very small and seemingly harmless, but that didn't matter for some passengers and many of the over 6 million people who've watched the video on TikTok. The clip shows a flight attendant going with an empty soda bottle to try to corral the reptile, which was slithering on top of the overhead bin. He eventually uses the bottle to nudge the snake into a plastic bag. An Air Asia spokesman praised the crew, who said they're trained to handle such occurrences. The plane was inspected after landing to ensure there were no other slithering stowaways and that the plane was also deep cleaned and fumigated before being put back into service. So funny, those stories always seem to happen on another continent, right? You, you, like you've never done a story uh, in which you've said a snake on a plane that was uh, en route from Boston to Charlotte or uh, you know <laughs> Chicago to L.A. It's just not stories we do here. Yeah, not typically snakes uh, making their way onto planes in, it said in Boston or New York or sort of, you know, the more the colder weather climates here. We have, I mean, Florida, I guess, is a possibility, I but I guess, don't think we've yeah. seen that. In, we, we haven't seen that in Florida or, you know, the Southwest, but we haven't seen that as of yet. So the cr- we're, we're waiting. The crew is trained to handle such occurrences. Yeah, I guess yeah. this happens uh, more than we know, huh? How to corral a snake. That's uh, Tuesday's training, everybody, you know. Please report with your plastic bag and, and soda cans or whatever they did there. <laughs> yeah, that didn't look like any real formal training, grabbing, grabbing somebody's soda bottle right. and uh, trying to get the snake in there. But uh, who knows? Maybe that was on the final exam. <laughs> and uh, a deep cleaning and fumigation may be just the start of what a Southwest plane might need after a passenger on that airline says she was forced to sit under some unidentified liquid dripping from a bag stored in the overhead compartment. This comes from another viral video with over three and a half million views. Sophia Shaw says this happened last month while she was flying from San Jose to Santa Ana. Sophia says she fell asleep shortly after takeoff, but awoke after noticing that her leg and seat were completely soaked. She initially thought the lady next to her had spilled water until she looked up and saw a big drip coming from the ceiling. What's worse, when Sophia made the crew aware of the drippage, they offered no help saying they couldn't move the bag or move her because it was a full flight. She tried to make the best of it, scooching to one side of her seat to avoid the dripping, but even that didn't work after turbulence made the liquid start dripping from other spots underneath the bin. Goodness. Southwest, yeah, Southwest did attempt to make some amends afterwards, offering her $150 back, though that seemed a bit stingy since the cost of her flight was $160. Do we want to know what that liquid is or no? I don't know if they ever found out, and uh, I don't know if she did either. She yeah. just wanted her money back as soon as possible. But no, I, you probably don't want to know in that situation. A shower as quickly as possible. Yeah, agreed. Thank you, Mike. For all the ones who get it done, Granger is always there to help. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, 24-7 support, free access to product specialists, and experienced staff at over 250 local branches. Plus, they provide real-time product availability online and have sourcing specialists who can help you track down hard-to-find items. And their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call 1-800-GRANGER, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Thanks for spending time with us. Welcome into Friday. New car buyers finally have the upper hand over sellers as prices fall farther below MSRP. According to a Kelly Blue Book report, vehicle prices just had the largest yearly decline 
ever. New car prices, which almost always increase from year to year, are down 2.4% in the last 12 months. The average price of a new vehicle, not exactly a bargain, $48,700 in December. Brian Moody, executive editor at Kelly Blue Book, tells Money.com that there's potential for U.S. car prices to fall even more this year as vehicle inventory bounces back, forcing dealers to reduce their margins. The recent trends mean that car buyers can negotiate for discounts again. Some of the largest car discounts and incentives right now are available on electric vehicles due to inventory glut. Eight minutes in front of the hour on this morning. Once again, here's Nicole Murray. And now, the three big things you need to know. Number one. Republicans say Hunter Biden will testify behind closed doors on February 28th before the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees. The deposition is part of an impeachment probe against his father, President Biden. Committee Chair James Comer on the importance of Hunter's testimony. The president's son is a key witness in this investigation. He's going to be able to come in now and, and sit down and answer questions in a substantive, orderly manner. Hunter has been refusing to testify in a hearing not open to the public and was nearly held in contempt of Congress. Number two. The House Homeland Security Committee will vote on an impeachment resolution today of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Republicans say Mayorkas improperly handled the crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border and should be charged with failing to enforce the nation's immigration laws. Democrats say the secretary followed Biden's policies and the blame should fall on Congress. Mississippi Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson. This isn't a real impeachment. It's a predetermined, pre-planned, partisan political stunt. If impeached, Mayorkas will be the second cabinet secretary in history. Number three. Three people in Portland have been killed and a nine-month-old baby was injured after a power line fell on a parked car on Wednesday. The three killed were found dead upon firefighters' arrival. The baby was taken to a hospital and is in good condition. It is believed the victims were electrocuted once stepping out of the vehicle. Portland Fire and Rescue Spokesman Rick Graves. If you don't need to leave your car in a case like this when you have a live active wire over the top of your vehicle, please just stay, contact emergency services, that line can be de-energized and everything can be safe. Severe winter weather has resulted in at least 10 deaths in the Portland area since January 12th. An American Airlines played fear, veered off the runway while landing at a Rochester International Airport yesterday. Monroe County Communications Director Gary Walker says there was no injuries among the 50 passengers and three crew members on board. The cause of the mislanding is still undetermined. Zoos in New York and Texas have an unusual Valentine's Day gift. Pay to have a Madagascar hissing cockroach named after their valentine. Also in the package, roach socks, stuffed roaches, and virtual Roaches encounter. Nice. A woman from the Milwaukee suburbs has a wild story about delivering a baby in the parking lot of a McDonald's during heavy snow and freezing temperatures. Analicia Beck of Muskego says she and her husband were heading to the hospital at 4 a.m. last Friday but pulled into a Mickey D's parking lot after realizing they were not going to make it in time. Her contractions were intensifying. She told WTMJ Television that as soon as they got into the fast food parking lot, she told her husband she was going to have to catch the baby because he was coming out. It hit me like halfway through and I just kind of laid my head back in the trunk and I was like, I'm having my baby at McDonald's. <laughs> this cannot be real. Paramedics soon arrived to help deliver the baby, put him on oxygen. The couple says the boy already has a nickname. His name officially is Micah Daniel. So that could be shortened to Mickey D's. And Alicia says they've kind of been calling him McFlurry because he's earned that nickname as well. 
For Nicole Murray and Mike Gavin, I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for listening to This Morning, America's First News.